this morning. I want to bring you up to speed a little bit of what we've covered so far about this man, Jesus, because what we're learning about him, it's amazing. And it gets my heart like fluttering, you know, it gets me really excited. But it started not at Jesus' birth. It started hundreds of years before that, during what may have been Israel's hardest, darkest time in their history. Prophets of God began to open their mouths, and they began to speak of one who would come, a Messiah, a deliverer, a rescuer, one who would bring redemption for the people of God. Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in one of my favorite ways as I read this Bible to my kids, a rescuer, someone that's going to come and make all the wrong things right again. How many want that? Show of hands, who wants that? Who wants that redeemer, that rescuer? In the same way that those words bring up hope in our hearts, they brought up hope for the people of God. Hope was born in the hearts as these words rolled off the prophet's lips. They began to watch, they began to wait for the Savior. And this waiting would last for days, months, years. The words of the prophets would be known in the good times of Israel's history when a king followed and obeyed the the law of the Lord. They would say, maybe this is the king we've been waiting for. These words would be remembered as Israel goes into exile, as Judah is taken into exile to Babylon and to, to Assyria. There's devout men and women who would still pray to God saying, deliver us, God. Redeem your people. Let now be the time. And these words would be remembered even as God went silent, as the prophets were no more, as visions didn't occur. The 400 years leading up to the birth of Jesus, it's almost as if God stopped speaking. Which is weird because they've had this relationship for so long where they'd speak face to face. Men could stand up and say, this is what God says for you right now. And in their history, Israel's living in a time where Rome is coming in and taking over. Establishing all these new laws and new customs and new ways. And all it's doing for the people of Israel is it's creating more longing for that promised one. That small flame of hope which was lit hundreds of years ago. Maybe that was thought to have gone out by now. And in an instant, it's revived. Angels began to appear to people. Angels that are said to have been sent right from the very presence of God. Choruses of angels would appear to shepherds. And they would sing of his glory. And they'd say, go see him. You need to go see him. They spoke of this long-awaited Messiah. The one who would bring God's full plan of redemption. He'd come as a baby. He'd be born of a virgin. They'd call him Jesus, Savior, Emmanuel. He would grow up. And Luke tells us that he grew up strong before the Lord and with wisdom. And that the favor of God was upon him. And you can imagine this buzz that surrounds this new baby's birth. When you see wise men, kings from thousands of miles away coming and laying their gifts before him. I bet his brothers and sisters had some stories about Jesus. Can you imagine? It was never his fault, I bet, right? 
His own cousin, John, had a reputation of being a man of God, being a, a, being a prophet, speaking the very words of God. And even this John, whenever he would see Jesus, he'd say, no, no, not me, him, over there, there he is, the one who I can't even stoop down and untie his sandals. It's him, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, that's him. The light that is going on in your hearts, the hope, the, the redemption, it's found in this man. And this Jesus, he comes to John to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness. Just like hundreds of others did. And when Jesus went under the water and came back up, the voice of God sounded. A voice from heaven. This is my son. This is the one that I love. This is him. Listen to him. And all of this is just the start of something amazing in Israel at the time. This really jumpstarts his ministry. Jesus begins to make a name for himself by traveling all around the countryside of Israel, preaching about God, opening up his word to people who had hard hearts before. Amazing is hears with his wisdom. Isn't this Mary's son? Where did he get such wisdom? It's not only that, he'd, he would heal people. He would place his hand on a sick man and he'd be made well. He gave back sight to the blind. He caused the deaf to hear. He caused the lame to walk. He caused the dead to have the life of God back in their lungs. This Jesus. And I feel like this Jesus is the Jesus that a lot of us expect. We expect this kind of stuff out of God, right? We expect God to move in huge, awesome ways. We expect God to work miracles, to snap his fingers, and to have wind and waves obey him. But what we don't expect is what Jesus does next. Jesus has 12 guys that are following him. Teenage boys that are walking with him everywhere. And Jesus looks at him and he says, it's your turn. It's your turn. So if you have your Bible, let's open up to Luke chapter 9. If you need a Bible, maybe some guys in the back by the tables could just pass some Bibles out. Luke chapter 9. We'll read a first couple verses from there, and then we'll go into Luke chapter 10. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you hear anything today, hear this, okay? Jesus called the twelve together. And he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter. Stay there till you leave that town. And if people do not welcome you, then leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from the village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Flip over a page, chapter 10, starting in verse 1. This comes right after Jesus says, No one who puts their hand to the plow, no one who is for me, no one who is working in the kingdom for me looks back is fit for service. 
And he says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them out two by two ahead of him, every town, every place where he was about to go, and he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. If you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. And if not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago of sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, we'll go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. And again, the 72, they returned with joy and said, Even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is God's word. You can have a seat. I love reading this because it makes me just get excited about who Jesus is. I love the style of Jesus. Because I really think that the way that it should go is that older men and older women should be handing authority down to younger men and younger women. I loved being 16 and getting the keys to a car, right? I loved my dad handing me the keys and saying, just go. Wherever you want, you can go. But the difference is, I was asking for those keys a lot. You know what I mean? When I was 14, I would just wait till they leave. I would drive that car around my neighborhood I'm begging for that authority, that responsibility. I don't think these guys were. I think it caught them off guard. Jesus hands it to them. And, and what we're reading about today, in my opinion, and I know that there's a lot of other opinions out there. My opinion, this is Jesus' step three of discipleship. Step one is found in chapter six when he teaches the sermon on the plain. It's the teaching. It's the listen to me. It's the learn from me. Step two is in chapters seven and eight when he says, okay, now come on, follow me. Watch what I do. And here we have step three. Jesus says in John 13 that I'm giving you an example that as I'm doing, now you should do. He says, Listen. He says, watch. He says, do. 
Learn from me. Listen to my words. Open up your ears to hear what I'm really saying. Let these words of mine ring in your head. Just like the psalmist said, I meditate on them day and night. Make them your own. Know them by heart. Now watch me. Take note of how I move. Take note of where I go. How I interact with people. How I speak to them. How I touch them. And go. Go do it. Go talk like I talk. Go where I go. Touch how I touch. Engage how I engage. Take the lessons. Take the mechanics. And go out and do it. The thing that really surprises me when I read this text is, is basically that these guys hear Jesus and then they go do it. They don't respond like Moses. And Moses is in front of a burning bush that's not being consumed and he says, no, 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 you must have the wrong guy. Don't send me. They don't respond like Gideon does by saying, eh, really God, I'm going to put this fleece out and you do this and do that, you know. I'll do it. No, these guys, they go. They don't hear Jesus and then huddle together and say, what did he really mean by that? They go. They trust Jesus so much. He's earned their trust. And when he says go, there's no second thought. These, they're gone. And I'm not sure about you guys, but for me, in so many ways, this sermon could end in this. I want to trust Jesus the way that these guys trust Jesus. What about you? Are you with me in that? To have words like Matthew 6 coursing through my mind when he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear to church on Sunday morning. Because God, our Father in heaven, he knows that you need these things and he's longing to provide them for you. Give him an opportunity. Give him an opportunity to provide. And I really think it's those first two steps of discipleship that make this third one even possible. They trust because they've heard him. They trust because they've been there with him. And I just, again, I feel this question arising, just like, do you? Do you? Are you able to trust Jesus because you have his word? Are you able to trust Jesus because you have his experience? Do you know the words of Jesus, the words of the Father, the Savior? Are they ringing in your head throughout the day? Are you closing your eyes and picturing these stories happening? Or is it just a book that's collecting dust? I talk to people a lot who say, man, I wish that I could recall verses. I wish that I could be one who knows the stories of the Old Testament and knows the stories in the context of the New Testament. And I just say, that's not a permanent problem. It's a temporary problem. Every person that you look up to who knows the text, every person that you look up to who can quote a verse like that, knows it for one reason. They've read it. They've put it in their hearts. They've hid it there. You can learn the word of God. You can learn who Nabal is. It's one of my favorite examples because Nabal is a guy in the Bible that I had no idea who he was. I'm reading through the text and I get there 
you read it once, and then you keep going. A couple pages later, you forget who this guy Nabal is. And that's what most people's experience is. They don't read the Bible because when they do read it, they're not able to retain it. But I tell you what, the second time I read the Bible, the third time I read it, I knew who Nabal was. The fourth time I remembered that he's married to Abigail and that his name means foolish because that's what he is. He's a fool. You read it over and over and over. Day in, day out, these stories are not just stories anymore. They're arrows ready to be shot at the enemy. Maybe you know his word because I'm looking around this room and I see a lot of people who have given their lives to the word of God. A lot of people that I'm following. But maybe you've never watched him work. Maybe you've never surrounded yourself with the people of God, the people who are working for the kingdom of God, the people who have their hands on the plow. And because of this, there's paralysis. You're trying to go out and do step three. You're trying to make disciples of all nations, but you haven't committed your life to his word or being around people who are doing his works. I just want to encourage you guys, if you give your life to it, that book, and if you begin to surround yourself with the people who are working for God's kingdom, in time you're going to find that it's actually your hands on the plow. It's you doing the work of the kingdom. It's you breaking up fallow ground. Now, when I read this text, sometimes I'm not really sure what's going on. I'm kind of thrown off. And I, I think that it's because I never really understood the significance of what ha- what's happening. I mean, is Jesus just showing an object lesson, like, okay, now let's get our hands dirty. Is he just teaching the fact that God wants to provide for these 12 and these 70? I don't, I don't think so. I think there's more to it. And a key to that, a hint for me, is these numbers. We know that numbers tell a lot. They help paint the picture of what the story that's happening. And so the first number that we see is in 9 verse 1, he says, he gathered the 12 together. What does 12 remind you of? What is number 12 supposed to just set off in your head? The tribes. The sons of Israel. And really what it means is, it's the same language as like when the Bible says from Dan to Beersheba. It means the whole land, the whole nation, the whole community of God's people. The 12. And in chapter 10, When he sends the 70, Matthew's gospel says 70. There's a little footnote in the Bible that says some manuscripts say 70, some say 72. That one's a little bit harder. In Genesis chapter 10 and 11, those two chapters are called uh, the table of nations. And in those chapters, there's 70 names listed. And in uh, Jewish culture, rabbinic literature, those 70 names represent something. They represent the 70 Gentile nations. You see that. And so what Jesus is doing is is actually just a really practical move. He makes it clear through the Gospels that his plan of salvation, it includes everyone, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, there's an order that Jesus is following. To the point where in Matthew chapter 15, he looks at a Canaanite woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon, and he says to her, 
I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel. I'm sure you're familiar with the words of Paul in Romans, chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says kind of an anthem for us. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Jesus is sending his message throughout the land. His message of the kingdom is going out in this order. The 12 are sent, as Matthew's gospel tells us, to the house of Israel. Jesus even makes a point to say, don't go to any Gentile city. Don't go to any Samaritan city. Just to my lost sheep. And shortly after they return from that journey, Jesus gathers up even more of his disciples. And he says, go out to every town and to every place. What we have here is a, it's a picture of the salvation of God working through the ends of the earth. Reaching the Jews, reaching the Gentiles, his salvation being offered to all people. And another thing that I think Luke wants us to see is that Jesus, he's reclaiming the hearts of the people and he's reclaiming the land. You know, uh, I think you're familiar with when the Israelites are in the desert for 40 years and they come up out of the desert. And, and in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving them kind of final instructions before Joshua leads them into the land. And Moses says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, that when you're going to, to make war on these nations, when you're going in to take the land, first say to every city, peace. He says, offer that city peace. And if the residents of the city accept that peace, then they're shown mercy. And listen, I know there's a lot of things that we could talk about when it comes to uh, the Israelites wiping out the Canaanites. But I think what we need to see is this parallel between the conquest of Joshua and the conquest of Jesus. Because Jesus knows that there's a battle. It's real to him. A battle of light versus dark. He knows whose the victory is. And he's offering peace. He's offering light to anyone who would receive this message as it's coming from his apostles. Next we see in our text that Jesus has a pretty specific uh, way of going out, doesn't he? Some of you wish that you could pack like this when you go on a plane or something like this. In both situations, he tells them just to leave. Right now, go. Empty-handed. No bag, not even extra shirt. Don't take anything with you. And um, for us, especially, that gets us kind of cringy, right? Because we think, what if? Like, what if uh, my shirt gets dirty? And I think that we'd see Jesus sending them out, like, ill-equipped. And that's just wrong. Jesus equips them fully. He gives them everything that they need for this trip that they're going on. He doesn't send them out empty-handed. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says that as he calls these guys together, his friends, his disciples, and now his apostles, he gives them power and authority. Power and authority over all demons. Power and authority over all sickness and disease. Power and authority to trample the serpent, to trample the scorpion, evil itself. This Greek word is dunamin. Power, dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. 
strength, might, ability, capacity, force, power of God. And authority is this Greek word exousian. It means jurisdiction, control. It means the right to use this power. Jesus gives them a stick of dynamite and a lighter. You see that? They're not, they're not separate. He gives these things together. And they're sent out to be the mouthpiece of God himself. And I just want you to imagine that. Just try to picture what might be going on in these guys' heads. Think of all the great men of the Old Testament that have gone before them. People that they would call their own forefathers who were able to, to defeat huge armies, slay giants, cause the heavens to send rain or withhold them for a certain amount of time. These are men who could make the sun stand still. Now these boys, they're joining the ranks with those who have been clothed in power and authority of God himself to bring the very nearness of God to the lost and to the hurting. And we want this, don't we? We want this. We want that experience. And I, I just, I have written on my page, and this is for me this morning. Wake up! We have been given the same task as the apostles. Jesus says over and over that the thing that he's done, now we're to do. The things that he has said, now we are to say. We as a church are going to be nothing in the future unless we realize that we're the ones who've been clothed with power and authority through the Holy Spirit. That we're the ones that Jesus is counting on to bring his nearness, his gospel to the hurting, to the lost in Grand Rapids, in Walker, in Ada, wherever your street corner is. We're the ones. Their mission is our mission. We've lost touch with that, I feel. As if uh, gathering in church on Sunday is the end of our lives, is the goal of our lives. It's not. It'd be impossible, that, that bringing of power and authority would be impossible without this third thing that Jesus equips them with. Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 2, pray. Would you learn how to Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly to him that there might be a great awakening toward the message of the kingdom of God and that more and more workers would be sent out in this great ingathering of saints to pray. Be so caught up in this mission, so in need of the Father that you're not even able to greet each other on the road because you're fervent in your prayers. Pray for a more clear picture of the battle that's at hand. I know that I need to do this personally. I need to be reminded that there's a battle and that the battle lines have been drawn and there's no, like, neutral area between them. There's light and there's dark. And plenty of people will try to tell you that there's a gray area in the middle. That there's plenty of just good people. It's not the case. We see it in our story that there's two camps that you can be in. 
One camp accepts the peace of God into their homes. They fellowship with the messengers. They're changed by the message. For them, the kingdom of God has truly come near. The other camp that we could be in is those that reject the peace of God. They turn away the messengers of the king. And the messengers even wipe the dust off their feet so that nothing clings to them. Jesus denounces these people. He denounces this city. And he says that those people of God, it'll be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than those who reject the news of his kingdom. That is astonishing. We need to hear those words because we've grown cold to the fact that this is life or death. We've grown cold to the fact that there are really people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus. Even in Bible Belt Grand Rapids, there are people who need the message of Christ to come off of your lips. People who need to see the kingdom. People who need to experience the kingdom. The thing that stood out to me the very most as I'm preparing this message are these words. The harvest is plentiful. Do you believe that? Some of you heard Greg, but I'm, not, I'm sure not all of you did. He just said, he just got back from Malta. And the work that God is doing in the Middle East and in North Africa is astonishing to the point that where a man who had been working in the area for over 30 years, just now, when he shared the gospel to over 500 Iraqi non-believers, 177 of them gave their life to Christ. That's unprecedented. A man came up to me after the service and said, in countries like Burma, closed countries, countries where the gospel of Jesus is illegal. Hundreds have given their lives to him. In November, I was in Israel at this worship conference, and looking around the room, I'm like the only white person there. Every person other than me and a few people came from nations where they're really experiencing the passion and the love of the Father towards them, and they're giving their life to Christ to the point that they're in their hours before worship services start, and they're on their knees, and they're crying, and they're praying, meet with us, meet with us, we love you. And they come from places where it's illegal to do that. We need to be praying to the Lord of the harvest. God, use me for my family. Use me. And when you have this power, and you have the authority from God, this dynamite and this lighter, and when you combine it with real presence of God, real conversation with God, only then are you able to advance the kingdom of God. Right now, people that you work with, the bus driver, the bus that you ride every day, your brothers, your sisters, your grandchildren, your children, your parents, your grandparents, right now. Jesus wasn't stupid. He was talking to people as the Romans took over their land, as the world changed, as darkness seemed to have a more firm grip on what was going on around them. Jesus, in that context, says the harvest is plentiful. And to me, I can barely turn my TV on or watch a movie without seeing something that I really wish I didn't see. 
where perversion is the norm. Jesus says, the harvest now is plentiful. So pray. Pray. I mean, again, put yourself in their shoes. You're a teenager. You're going from town to town with one other buddy. Maybe you've never been to this town before. Maybe this is the town that you grew up in. Maybe your parents are there. Devout Jews are here listening to what you're about to say. And the message that you receive from Jesus begins to come off of your mouth. And arms begin to cross. And brows are furrowed, right? And somebody else, blasphemy! And from the crowd comes forth a man who's sick. And he just says, wait, are you... I've heard, I've heard of this. Are you talking about Jesus? Are you talking about the, uh, the one who went to Jairus' daughter? I've heard that he raised her from the dead. And you say, yeah, I know him. This Jesus, he's given me his name as his power and his authority. And you say, what do you need? In front of everyone. And, they, and he says, I, I need to be made well. And you, just as doubtful as every other person, reach out a shaking hand and pray for this man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Be made well. And he is made well. Can you imagine what's going on in everyone's mind, but more importantly, these, these disciples' minds? What's going on in their heart? All these questions of who this man, Jesus, may have been. They're answered in a moment when they say his name. These experiences shake their worlds. We see it, uh, verse 17 of chapter 10, all these disciples, after they've gone throughout the land, they come back. Yes! Yes! The kingdom! Jesus! We saw demons submit to us in your name. It's happening. Your kingdom is going forth right now. They witnessed the demonic world subjected to the name of Jesus and they rejoice. And, and I know that a lot of us have been there too, Right? Maybe you've seen the demonic whimper at the name of Jesus. Maybe you've witnessed addictions being broken. Sicknesses healed. Maybe you've witnessed the gospel going into the darkest places and fruit being born there. But a lot of, a lot of us are struggling too because we're not seeing that every day. We want that. We want to be on that team. But we don't see it happening around us. We don't see that power coming out of our hands. Maybe your heart's longing to be part of a successful ministry, but you're just spinning your wheels. Jesus kind of calls us to the carpet. He says, get off the roller coaster. Get off this up and down, up and down, this yes, 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 the demons are submitting. Ah, they're not being healed. Stop hanging our hearts on our accomplishments, on our uh, righteousness almost, on our prayers. 
And he says, start hanging them on mine. I'm not sure where everyone is this morning, where you're all at with this. But I'm fairly certain of what God is calling us to. He's calling us to learn his word. To pick up that book. To let his words pass through our ears into our hearts. He's calling us to learn his works. To watch how he moves and move like him. He's calling us to pray and to go with his power and his authority and to make disciples of all nations, to baptize men and women all over the world in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. Saying, don't rejoice that you've had success. Don't rejoice that you've had success because guess what? What happens when you don't? have success? What happens when you're unsuccessful? What happens when your marriage crumbles? It says rejoice in this. Your names are written in the book of life. They're written in heaven. He says, surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. And whether you move mountains and change the culture of your college campus or your workplace, or you never see the fruit with your own eyes, Rejoice in this. The great love that the Father has lavished on us. That we'd be called children of God. That's what we are. Let's pray. I know that for me, God, in my weakest moments, and even right now after really having my heart tied up and preaching a good sermon and not knowing if that's happening. I just want to hear you say, it doesn't matter. Don't rejoice in that will. Rejoice that you're mine. Rejoice that you're my child. That you're worthy of, of my blood, of my life. And I just thank you. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move right now through Greg and this worship team and through your word, to bring more people into that, that type of rejoicing, that, that your gospel would be going out, and that you would be bringing people into your kingdom this morning.